You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Broken away from our study in the Gospel of John as we're approaching the cross of Christ to study a a, a series of, of biblical teachings that actually bring us back to the cross. And so we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 today. We're not going to study all of these verses, but I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And as you look to Ephesians chapter 2, this is a common way Paul writes his letters. He, he starts out saying, who is God? Who are you next to God? Look at his redemption. Look what he's done for you. And then he spends the end of the book saying, now here's what you do about it. We have to know who God is before we can understand what it means to follow him and for that matter be motivated to follow him rightly. So Ephesians chapter 2, he's describing a spiritual condition of the people of Ephesus in the past. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we so much need to uh, grasp what it is you're calling out to us from your word this day. We understand that this ought to result in changes in our lives, in changes the way we connect to other people, changes in the way we view you, the way we worship our prayer lives. But we have to hear what you're saying first. So speak to us from your word. Remind us to humble ourselves as we come into this. Forgive us for thinking this is old stuff and irrelevant to our lives now. Sanctify us through your truth. Your word is truth. Through Jesus we come. Amen. Please have a seat. Once in a while, not only because uh, we need to review, but also because this, uh, this message is actually broadcast a long ways away, it's important for us to get the context of what we're doing right here and why we do what we do right here. So let me just explain something quickly before I enter into more Latin words, okay? The church is a body of redeemed believers. And so the local church gathered 
is to be according to God's word. This is the way he designed it, and so we're going to do it his way. This is to be instruction for a body of believers. The group is called saints, and that, that doesn't mean every one of you has come to faith in Christ who are a part of Providence Church. But our, our gatherings on this day, these scheduled congregational gatherings, are for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And that means, friends, if, if you ever say, boy, I have to think when I go to church. I want to just go in there and, and get pumped up for the week. I hope truth pumps you up. And I hope that I don't dig down so deep and come up so dry that I've not clearly taught the word of God because I think it's a sin to make the Bible boring. It is always relevant. So our gatherings, believers, are for you. And that means you, you make, make it a point to faithfully gather with the church and to faithfully serve one another when we leave here. I also realize, because the New Testament acknowledges this, that when congregations gather, sometimes there are people who come into the midst who, who have really don't know anything, no, no up from down in the Bible, don't know who God is. What a great thing. And we would do well to learn to, to connect with people who come through our doors because we don't know what their background is. And certainly, the Word of God is relevant for them too. If you are in that category listening to this either live or later on and you're not sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus, some of this is heavy because it's directed toward believers, but I want you to know God has a way of using his word to, to rip your insides out and expose them. That's why the Bible's compared to a sword that pierces the, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of your thoughts and your intents and your motives. So, so often when there's a challenge being given to somebody who is a follower of Christ, somebody who's on the outside is left wondering, how, how does this guy know what I was thinking and what I was doing? Truth is, just comfort you. I don't. But God knows you, and God speaks through his word, and God has called all men everywhere, all women everywhere, to repent and turn to his son. And so if I am not accurately laying out before you the Bible, if my, if my intent here was just to make you feel good or to give you a motivational talk, I have failed miserably. And so as a congregation, when we're, we've been working our way bit by bit through a book of the Bible called John, and we've come up to the place where this central event, and I sincerely believe this, this central event in all of history is about to happen, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should find ourselves saying, what difference does that make for me? And it makes every difference to you. So we've taken this time for the five weeks of October to remember an event that happened 500 years ago that actually was going on before that. It just came to a head in a man named Martin Luther, who rediscovered, not discovered, but rediscovered what the Bible teaches about who God is, about who man is. Last week we talked about the, the biblical teaching or doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. It's our final authority for what we believe and how we behave. And today we're talking about sola gratia. And is it that important for you to learn the Latin words? No, it's just, it's a historical term. It's throughout history, uh, at least Protestant church history, that people have said, yes, salvation is by grace alone, and that's what sola gratia means. So we'll pause here and just say this. This 
teaching of salvation by grace alone from start to finish is it runs against the way Western people think. A lot of you grew up in stable homes, and I know not, not all of you did, but a lot of you, a lot of you grew up in stable homes like, like I did, and there was enough sin to go around in our house, but there were certain bottom line things that you learned in your home. For instance, if you want money, you work for it. If something's going on that you don't like, you pour yourself into it, and if you do A, B, and C enough, D will almost always result. And that makes, uh, that, that makes for good salespeople, that makes for good farmers, that makes for good factory workers, because you say, I am going to get back out of this what I put into it. Eat your own bread. You know, that's a biblical principle. Self-reliance on, a, on an economic level is a good thing. But if we live that way in, in every part of our lives, we, we could quickly apply that to a relationship with the living God. And so, grace can become a scandalous thought. We start thinking, you know, I think when I look around, I look at the news, there are some really bad people in the world. And I'm not that bad. I mean, isn't it true? If you ever feel like you're, you're really low and the whole self-loathing thing comes in because you've messed up again and you've done the same thing again, just turn on the news. I mean, this past week, we've had plenty. It's like, how could we have a, a, an American irreligious man, but, but, but somebody who is not, not from the Middle East uh, doing things worse than ISIS is doing? How, how can we have that kind of thing going on in, in our country? Because we're, we're moral people, but I'm sure glad I'm not that bad. And so when we apply it to God's salvation, we say, surely, if anybody's going to make it in, it's going to be me, because I'm pretty much better than average. I also realize that most of you here would say, I've got a chapter and verse for that. I know that that's, that's not true. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But don't you know that same man-centered theology creeps into your Christian life? Things are going wrong. They're not going as planned. In fact, they're going exactly as you... It was your nightmare and you're, you're living this out. And you're asking yourself, what did I do wrong? I've been having my devotions every day. I tithe on my gross, not on my net. I'm training my children right, making sure they're in, in church, making sure they're, they're, they're coming to activities. Why is God not responding? And, and, you know, for believers who claim salvation by grace alone, it is really easy to think that salvation, or rather that sanctification and blessing is by works. Yes, there are responsibilities you and I take. But as we're defining this, and I, I want to start with a number of texts of Scripture that form the basis for this teaching that Luther rediscovered that the Church of Rome absolutely was not teaching. And before I go into this, I, I will say this, just so you don't go talk to your friends and say, yeah, our pastor just told me why your church is so messed up. So, so let me say this, when, when people say the Church of Rome, 
does not teach salvation by grace. That is not true. Okay? That is not true. The Church of Rome does not teach salvation by works. That is not the official teaching. The, the official teaching of the Roman Church, if you're going to pick on them, and please, please be gracious, is that salvation is by faith and works, that, that we grace is something that assists us doesn't actually rescue us, but boy, we couldn't be saved apart from the grace of God. It's just that we have to put other things into it. And by the way, there was a whole book of the Bible written to address that. Well, yeah, we need faith and grace, but we also need, which is why there are texts of scripture that we need to, to, to know. And, and this, this is not the only, we, can, we could look at Old Testament texts too. And when we get to, to sola fide next week's faith alone, we'll see that. Romans chapter 3, biblical basis for sola gratia, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. The word grace means gift. When someone gives you a gift, you don't say, how, how can I pay you back? When someone says, I love you, I'm going to give you this gift, it's exactly what you need for your survival, I'm giving you this you're not paying them back the rest of your life. You're responding in gratitude. So he says, yes, we've sinned, but how could we be declared right before God while we're still sinners? Well, it's a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And it, it talks about Jesus satisfying God's, God the Father's demands on us. And it was to demonstrate that he's righteous even though we're not. Romans chapter 9 talking about election. Don't say, well, this is just one of those controversial things we're not going to cover it. You'd really have to cut a lot of your Bible out to not talk about election and predestination. Talking about Jacob and Esau and what they represented, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, even though the word grace isn't here, it is, the, the concept is here, not because of works, but because of him who called. In other words, when it came to Jacob and Esau and the inheritance, whether you're talking earthly things or spiritual things, they were a grand picture of God saying, I am not choosing you based on how good you are. And as an aside, if you look at Jacob and Esau, Jacob was a bum. He really was a bad man. Why would God choose Jacob? It certainly had nothing to do with his behavior. Romans chapter 11. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Your performance does not save you. Your performance does not bring you sanctification. Your performance will not commend you in any way to the living God. In the next letter, in, in the order they were put into the New Testament, Paul's talking about and defending the fact that he really was an apostle sent by Jesus. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, he's not just talking about his salvation from his sins his grace toward me did not prove vain but I labored even more than all of them yet not I but the grace of God with me this wasn't about my performance my performance was because of what God did Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 in him that is Jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his 
grace. So before we get to the Ephesians text that I'm going to cover this morning, we're just we're going to do four, five, six, seven from Ephesians chapter two. And uh, during my companion study time down here later, we're actually going to continue on through that because. For whatever reason, the Spirit of God thought it very important to lay this out, uh, I'll say almost sequentially, what God was doing in the lives of people who were spiritually dead. All right, this is a mouthful, but I'm going to define it and then I'm going to explain that. Sola gratia is the biblical teaching which says that every aspect of the rescue of God's people from their state of sin and misery into future glory is the result of his gracious character and actions. So you look at the end, the result of his gracious character and actions. What is that? Is it just that I came to faith? Or is it that God's salvation started in eternity past when, when he chose me in Christ before there were any works in my life? He chose me, and this is all of Romans 8, <laughs> He brought me the gospel. He, he not only chose me, but he called me. He knew me. He chose me. He called me. He redeemed me. He saved me. And, and one day I'm going to be glorified. I, I will be like Jesus. That, that whole process from start to finish, it says, is a result of God's gracious character and actions. Which means, friends, you cannot say, why is this happening to me? Because I'm just as good as those, those other people. It's just a reminder to you, friend, that, that you're living in a sin-cursed world that Jesus died to, to rescue you, not, not just to give you prosperity, as if that were ever a guarantee, but to bring you eyes to see how things really are. Jonathan Edwards uh, so clearly. I mean, we're talking about God's sovereign choice in eternity past and the work of redemption that unfolded in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the application of the gospel that plays out as you, one of God's people, are taken toward glory. But Jonathan Edwards says, so, so what did you do? What's your contribution? And I, I love what Edwards said. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Do you know what that is? That, that forms the foundation of real worship. When we're coming in here and singing, that's why this can't be all about the style of music. Yeah, there are, there are styles of music that probably cancel out the message we're singing. But when you're singing, whether it's a, 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 a song with contemporary rhythms or traditional rhythms, what we ought to be focusing on is, what am I singing about God? What am I saying to Him? What am I saying to the other people around me in this? The foundation of worship is the rescue. That's why we can, we can sing forever of this mercy, this grace of the living God. I'm going to quote a few dead guys and a few living guys. Jonathan Edwards is one of the dead guys. St. Augustine, God bids us do what we cannot, that we may know what we ought to seek from him. God's calling you, in other words, to do something impossible. Turn from your sins and follow him. Augustine said, boy, um, Jesus said that, that it's only by a work of grace that we can understand that. Martin Luther, if any man ascribes salvation, even the very least to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace, and he has not learned Jesus Christ aright. Charles Spurgeon God forgives none because of payment made by them in any form. If we could bring him mountains of gold and silver, they would be worth nothing to him. 
If we bring him tears in rivers or alms in Alps or resolves vows and promises in countless numbers, all will amount to nothing as a bribe of grace. Augustus Top Lady who wrote Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, I just pulled one line from that hymn, Thou Must Save and Thou Alone. Some modern authors, John Sampson speaks of grace at the start, grace to the end, grace in the middle, grace without fail, grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace that allows no boasting, grace that precludes all glorying but in the Lord. This is what we're talking about. This is why sola gratia is so important for us to grab onto. As soon as you stick something in there, you're cheapening it and you're saying, God, there's something I can do either to get this from you or the debtor mentality, I've got to pay you back. Even some of our hymns kind of lean that direction. We're not paying him back because we can't. One of my favorite modern theologians, Timothy Keller, said, if the gospel is grace alone, then every conversion is a miracle. It's God's work. Talk about babies being, being born. I am totally pro-life. Love babies Looking forward to grandchild number seven. But I'm telling you, when young women become with child and, and have these wonderful little things, that's not a miracle. That's good biology created by what a wonderful thing. But when something impossible, the dead comes to life, happens. That is miraculous. If the gospel is grace alone, then every conversion is a miracle. John Hendricks says grace is in no sense contingent upon a condition we meet. If that were the case, it would no longer be grace. It's not by meeting a condition that we receive God's grace. It is by God's grace that we meet his condition. Pretty simple, but that's profound, isn't it? And Piper says God's grace is everything for the Christian. By grace alone, God chose his people before creation. By grace alone, Christ chose to die for his people. By grace alone, God causes his people to be born again so that they are new creations. And decisively, God's grace transforms us into holy people. That's what I want you to grab onto, church. As we're going through this, grace is not just a, yes, back in the day when I made a profession of faith. Yes, I'm saved by grace alone. I can't brag about it. But, but the scripture is teaching that from eternity past to eternity future, you are a product of the grace of God. And if you've been a pretty sorry likeness recently of being a product of the grace of God, there is a responsibility you take. But it isn't in performing better. It, it isn't if, if your struggle has been anger. It, it isn't anger management. It's, it's worship realignment, as Paul Tripp says. I need to get my worship life in order so I see him as glor- a gloriously gracious rescuing God. And that rescue doesn't just extend to my making a profession of faith. It, it extends to me and what I do and what I think. The way I connect with the people around me. The way I serve my wife the way I serve my employer, it's only by grace that I could be different. And that's why Paul, now we're headed to Ephesians chapter 2, this is why Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, remember, he's not writing to the general public. Ephesians was not written as a seeker-sensitive epistle. This was written understanding that there would be some people outside of the faith who would read it, but it was written to the saints, like all 13 of Paul's letters were. 
And, and he, he says, after describing God's gracious choice in eternity past in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, you were dead. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in, in your sidesteppings of the law of God. You were dead. And to quote, as my children will say, I know what he's about to say. It's okay. You're going to hear it a few more times before you're gone. As I sat in a theology class and during an oral theological exam and our professor took exception to this grace-centered doctrine and my friend said, man is spiritually dead and, and the professor said, well, so what do you mean dead? And my friend looked at him and said, dead. How, how do you define dead? Incapable of responding to anything physical is someone physically dead. And if Paul says you are dead in sin, you are dead spiritually, you are incapable on your own of responding to anything spiritual apart from the grace of God. And that really is the foundation for this text. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. In other words, yes, you were physically alive, but you did whatever you pleased. And in doing whatever you pleased, there was nothing you could do to commend yourself before the living God. Not even conjuring up some kind of faith in yourself. He says you were under the power of the devil. And this, this spirit, this devil is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says we all live there. Good church kids. Bad church kids. Good citizens. Bad citizens. He says, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing just what we pleased, even if we were religious people, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But we're, we're going to look at just a, a few of these verses, and we're starting with verse 4, with these two words, but God. We'll get to the mercy and we'll get to the grace in this text. This is a very important phrase, and I want you to, to, to follow what I'm saying, because this, this makes a difference in you and in your attitude with which you, you face your day, the attitude with which you face serving the other people around you in your home and in your church, your attitude toward the living God. He's described us as spiritual corpses, incapable of responding to anything spiritual. Those two words, but God, it's, it's really an important phrase because it's preceded with that hopeless view from earth. And it's followed by a hopeful view from God's perspective. Hopeless. But from God's perspective, looking down hopeful because this God is sovereign and he's good. He makes good choices. I want to give you some other examples from Scripture where, where just those words, but God, changes everything. Listen to this. This is from Genesis, at the, the end of Genesis 4 to, to the beginning, I'm sorry, the end of Genesis chapter 7 and then the first verse of Genesis 8. Just one little section. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And if you know the story, total destruction. But God. The next words, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. 
God caused a wind to pass over, over the earth and the water subsided. Now, now you get the idea. There's just this abrupt shift when you get to those words in Scripture. Genesis 48, 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph is, is standing and his brothers are, are kneeling and he's acknowledging that they did evil things. And Joseph says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Psalm 49, a description of the judged. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for shale to consume, so that they have no habitation. Pretty strong words of judgment, right? And then it says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of shale. That's, that's the grave. For he will receive me. Two more. Moving to the, the, the New Testament, the apostolic scriptures. Peter's preaching about the Lord Jesus, and he says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You know the next words, don't you? But God raised him from the dead, or raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And in Acts chapter 13, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from a cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Do you see what a, what a transformation this is when you see who God is and what he's done? That's grace, friends. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, a good exercise in the text, by the way, is just to pick out all the, all the wonderful attributes of God here, and it will bring you to worship. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I already said mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Normally you think about a, a wealthy person, a rich person, as someone who has a lot of something. But I want you to look at God's riches in a different way. Yes, he has a lot of something. But what is, what is God rich in here? He's rich in restraint. He's rich in what he chooses not to do. God is rich in restraint from something. Normally, this is used of people who have an abundance of worldly wealth. But, but here, riches are talking about God's overflowing ability to withhold the wrath that sinners deserved because he's merciful. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And, and now here's an action. Important also for us to understand what love is biblically instead of thinking, well, that's just this un, unconditional love and he's just, just like we are and we don't have to change. And, and uh, that, that's a pretty shallow definition of the love of God. God's love is better than unconditional. When he talks about love, he's talking about action. God loved his people. How did he love them? Look at that phrase. With love? Say, boy, is that, that, I was taught in school that you aren't supposed to use a word to define, use the same word to define a word. 
But this is rich if we take it at face value. Some things are only useful when they do what they were designed to do. So what about love? When is love useful? It's when you love with it. So I'll give you another example. That's why a jack is good to have in your trunk, right? But a jack is only useful when it jacks. Okay, so we've got the verb form. We've got the noun form. Uh, how about a mop? We've got a mop in the church janitorial closet. Mops live out their chief end when they mop. How about a club? Got a club? Keep one of those in your car. Clubs fulfill their primary purpose when they club. So having love is useless. So I've got a love. I've just, I'm just too loving. I just have too much love in me. The only way anybody's ever going to know how loving you are is if you love with it. So when, when Paul is talking about these dead people living as they pleased, even if it was religious fervor, they were living according to the flesh, under the prince of the power of the air, dead. But God being rich in what he restrains, loved us with love. That's what God did with his great love. God's love took on flesh. And the gospel is central to understanding this love. This is aggressive love. This is sacrificial love. The loving plan of God to call the dead from the grave became a loving act in Christ. That's, that's what sola gratia looks like. This is the God who stoops to save. This is the God who reaches down and condescends, lowers himself in the form of a man to take the punishment his people deserved. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. The, this by grace you have been saved actually is not first spoken in Ephesians 2.8. Paul adds this parenthesis, and I realize that's an English language thing, but it, it, this is what he's doing. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. But Paul, Paul says, now I need to make sure that these people I'm writing to understand what grace is. We were dead. In fact, if you have a King James Version, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 starts out, and you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive. And if you have a King James that's in italics, because the translators inserted it. They, they looked ahead and said, how do we do this? You were dead in your transgressions. We've we got to have a verb here. And so they reached forward to this verse. He brought you to life. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. And don't make much of the verse division, by the way, between verses 4 and 5. You look at verses 4 and 5 together and you see he loved us, in verse 4, even when we were dead, Verse 5, Paul gave the church at Rome the, the same contrast between the hopeless condition of man and God's rescue. So let me just read this for you from Romans 5. Some of you have memorized it, no doubt. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for, perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. 
died for us. So here's something that's very much overlooked. When we're discipling people, remember, we're not just training people to go to church and, and tithe and stay out of the bars. That's not Christian discipleship. We want people to understand who God is. Union with Christ ought to be something fundamentally that, that we teach in our church and certainly that we teach when we're making disciples rather than just cutting notches in our Bible because someone made a claim. The, this teaching of the union with Christ is very much overlooked, but it's so profound in how it applies to the way we live now. Friends, let me put it this way. If you are a follower of Christ, you are not what you once were. You are not what you once were. Romans 6 goes on to talk about being united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. The old you is dead. Christ is alive in you. And you say, then why do I keep doing this? Hey, camp in Romans 6 for a while and you're going to find out in Romans 7. Paul ends Romans 7 with these frustrating words. Well, almost to the end. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You think that's not a real and, and relevant piece of theology? This fact that I am united with Christ, but, but the paradox is I'm still living in a sinful body. I stand righteous before the triune God. My condemnation has been taken away, and yet I keep doing this. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing them. So Paul says, I'm I'm wretched. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he went on to say, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the Lord Jesus living through you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Your union with Christ, believer, is intensely practical and relevant to where you are now. You are not what you once were. My substitute died, so I died. My substitute rose, so I stand before my judge with the words, it is finished, identifying my position. The, the work is done. I'm in him. And I know there are some people who might listen to these words and say, so then that means you can just do whatever you want. Jesus paid it all, and so you got nothing. Let me say, if you're, you're saying that, you've totally missed what grace is. <laughs> you've totally missed what it is to respond to grace to, instead of trying to earn it. We are debtors to grace, and that means I, I can't pay back some, some limitless reserve. Jesus made that pretty clear in a couple of parables, right? Insurmountable. How can I ever pay you back? I fall at your knees and accept it. And I show it to other people. Author Elise, Elise Fitzpatrick said this, Our entire lives, our sin, our good works, our faith, our doubt, everything in fact, have been subsumed, uh, subsumed uh, that means absorbed, into him in the resurrection. And we now stand before God alive, not dead, cleansed, not vile, whole, not shattered, and welcomed, not sent away. We are invited to live our whole life under his benediction, his smile, his love. That's identity, friends. That's not paying God 
for something in return. It, it's so much richer than that. This is the true identity of a believer. Are you ready? Alive with Christ. That's the delightful end of sola gratia. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This position in the heavenlies does not mean that followers of Christ are just like zapped into this entire sanctification. My uh, one friend who, who, who was a part of a denomination that believed in entire sanctification put it this way. Well, I'm supposed to believe in entire sanctification. It's, it's, it's just, it doesn't happen. There's something better than somehow thinking I have to achieve this place. What Paul's talking about here is that, that you believers stand in a guiltless position before God. And it means that God has started a good work in you and you are his piece of work. And he's going to finish what he starts. That's why you don't get away with sinning like some other people do. You can't live that way. When Jesus said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He wasn't simply talking about future resurrection. He said, and now is. And now is. The voice of the Son of God calls the dead to life. And I think Paul's talking about the same thing here. So that... In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Huh. You notice all the attributes of God's character that Paul uncovered in these few verses? If you were listening carefully, taking careful notes, he is merciful, and that means he doesn't give his people what they deserve. He's loving, and that means that he sacrifices to give his people what is in their best interest. He's gracious. And that means he does give his people what they don't deserve. He's powerful. And that means he directs his mighty deeds toward moving world events for his people. And for that matter, raising them from the dead, spiritually and ultimately physically. And finally, he's kind. And that means he acts with tender affection toward his people. So when we're talking about the character of God, and, and I know this, this is probably some heavy stuff for you, but, but church... God's laid the heavy stuff out in the Bible. We can't just skip over these things. What difference does it make in your life? I mean, isn't that where we ought to end once, once we've got the message? What difference does it make? And the truth is that God's character does more than motivate people. God's character changes people. What does a but-God existence look like for a believer? Well, it means, first of all, that when, when waves of shame from your past overwhelm you, you can stand gratefully and, and boldly because God accepted you on the merits of Christ rather than your own. You have a position that's both outside of earthly boundaries and it's, it's very real. Spiritual doesn't mean not real. We've been seated in the heavenlies, Paul said. It's also practical because that means when great temptation to sin torments you, you can know that it has no power over you. Some of you have, have been experiencing some of those waves this week. Intense temptation. Sometimes we don't, the devil doesn't even need to bother with us because we've trained ourselves so well. Sometimes our friends don't even need to try and draw us into sin because we've lived there so long. 
When great temptation to sin torments you, you can know that it has no power over you because God put to death the power of sin when Jesus died. That doesn't mean nobody gets tempted or that nobody sins. It just means in, in your responding to this gracious gospel, Jesus gave you new life when you rose. Why are you still living in the cage? The door is open. The chains are gone. It also means that when fear of tomorrow is interrupting today, you can persevere in living out your calling. That God has plans for this life for you, friend. He has plans for the next. He doesn't play off your circumstances. So as we're looking at sola gratia, here's why this is relevant. Sunday after Sunday, I stand here and I, I look at people who are hurting because of failed relationships, who are hurting because of the sinful choices of others, who are hurting because they are just running their whole life scared of people or circumstances, or who are just dreading tomorrow and perhaps even dreading death. And I'm saying, you'd better learn what grace is and camp in this grace alone salvation that God's provided from eternity past to eternity future. When you're enslaved to destructive habits, this is relevant. God's grace alone stands as your hope. Uh, earthly solutions, let me think about this. Have you ever tried to kick a bad habit? It, it's possible. Some of you perhaps as unbelievers have, have kicked a very bad, even destructive habit. But grace is so much richer than this. When you rearrange your habits, quit doing something, it's kind of like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It really looks good while it's going down. God's grace changes the thoughts and the desires of the believer's heart. And that's why Paul could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's his work. It's his work, not yours. Here's another one. You finally see your own pride as the reason your relationships are breaking down. Thank God that he revealed it to you. It's one of those things that's easy to see in other people and it's impossible to see in yourself. Almost impossible, but by God's grace, of course. So God's grace alone sets your resume next to the spotless Lamb of God's resume. And it's grace that opens your eyes not only to that, how disturbing that contrast is, but it opens your eyes to the hopeful prospects of deliverance. It's grace. I am proud. I, I have thought I could do this on my own. I'm strong enough. I'm self-reliant. I've learned since I was a child to pay my own way. And in the meantime, I have been tearing apart relationships wherever I am. Sola gratia is a sweet doctrine to you, or at least will be when you embrace it. When you're suffering because of the sinful choices of others, it's only God's grace that grants you the ability to give up the right to seek revenge, to give up the right to remain bitter, the supposed right to remain bitter, and it's based on the forgiveness you've received. What did God give you? Your sinful choices put Jesus on the cross, and so God's grace alone lets you sense his presence even when circumstances make it look like you've been abandoned. When you're afraid of what might happen tomorrow, 
God's grace alone assures you that the resurrected Christ is already present tomorrow and there's a plan in place. He began a good work in you, believer, and he's going to carry it on to completion until Jesus comes back. And finally, if if you are listening to this and you are terrified at the prospect of dying and you say, I am no saint and I am not a follower of Jesus, hang on to this. When you are terrified at the prospect of dying and facing the holy judge, this sola gratia instruction is for you. God's grace alone gives you the confidence that you can trust this message. It says your Savior endured the full force of wrath that you deserve, and and yours is not to pay him for it. Yours is to bow the knee. Beg him to let you in, and and by his grace, he'll not only bring you to that point, he'll let you in and, and say... You're united with, with me in my son. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude our worship time, make it worship from the heart. So as your people sing together these words of amazing grace, remind us that even if we were, if we were never caught into deep public scandal, that even those of us who were the good kids can call ourselves wretches and worms and delight in the rescue you provided. Thank you that your salvation, that your grace not only brings the dead to life, but brings them eternal life that starts now and and change. Make the sound sweet to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Your holy name.